we're walking, as we're walking through the book of Acts, we're looking at how God's big story continues to move forward through his spirit-empowered people. Um, from the book of Acts 2,000 years ago all the way down to us today, 2,000 years later in Nolan County, America, God is still moving his big story forward. And, um, you know, I, 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 we got, sometimes we, our wires don't cross right and we uh, get things out of order. And I'm so glad that was out of order, Addison. I'm so glad that I got to be in here and hear your words. That was so beautiful. You are beautiful. I'm so proud of you. Thank you for sharing. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Speak to us through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, and while we were down there at, at the, at the Frio, uh, at doing middle school camp, um, we, uh, we had the privilege of being in the Frio River, which it's, it's called that for a, for a reason. There, there are at least patches of water that are pretty Frio. And so, uh, so we, uh, we, we, a lot of the kids were, were in tubes. And, you know, as we're, as we're in those tubes, um, you know, the tube doesn't just stay in one place. As, 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 you're, as you're sitting there in that tube, uh, eventually you'll find yourself kind of uh, drifted over maybe further up upstream than you, or downstream, I guess it would be, than you, than you intended to be. Or you'll drift over into some, you know, kind of gnarly looking. And uh, moss and stuff, and, and kind of like that on that image of drifting. A few weeks ago, my family, we, we went on vacation down uh, to South Padre, and, and the water was beautiful, and we were out there enjoying it. But you would look up, and, and somehow you would, you would have drifted down like three hotels down the shoreline, you know, and, and you weren't even paying attention, but there was a strong pull. And the kids, we were like, hey, guys, you got to pay attention. You got to sw- keep swimming upstream, you know, because this current is taking you. But, you know, we'd look up, and they'd be like over there like in Mexico, and, and we have to go get them and, and bring them back. And, hey, you got you to just work again the tide just to, against the stream, just to be, just to kind of stay in one spot. You got to work against the current just to, just to even stay in, in one place. And there's this constant battle to keep our footing and, and, uh, and to stay in front of our hotel, not drift away somewhere else. And, and I share that today because uh, we're talking about God's grace and what it means to be rooted and grounded in God's grace. And, and God's grace, his goodness, his, you know, grace can easily become one of those church words that we use a lot, but we don't think about what does that mean. And, and God's grace is the only place that, that our lives can be fully rooted and grounded. God's grace is his power to do in us what we could never do for ourselves. God's grace accomplishes in us and through us what we could never do on our own. It's his unmerited, undeserved favor and love and goodness that just rests on us that we could never earn or deserve. And a life that's rooted in God's grace um, is going to have some characteristics. And, and, and we're all prone to wonder. Just like uh, you, you kind of float off and drift off on the Frio, just like on, down there at, uh, on, on the ocean, you kind of drift away. Uh, our life is like that day in and day out. I am daily tempted. I'm daily, I have a struggle or a propensity to drift away from being rooted and grounded in God's grace. We are all, we all struggle with floating over here and trying to find our worth and our value and our meaning and our foundation in something less than God's grace. Um, but a, a life that's rooted and grounded in God's grace is a life characterized by deep peace with God. Um, deep peace with ourselves. Deep peace with those around us. A life rooted and grounded in God's grace is characterized by stability and goodness and the fruit of the Spirit. Not perfect, but I need to ask myself the question, am I growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Is God's grace producing in me 
goodness and peace and patience and love. It's a life characterized by generosity, by, by, by pouring ourselves out for others. Uh, a life that's becoming more and more free of striving to earn or deserve or to be accepted. You know, God's grace produces humility in us. Um, I, if I really am, have experienced and tasted God's grace, I'm not going to say, hey, look at me, everybody. Look at how awesome I am that, I, that God's been gracious to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna uh, to understand that like, like the f- common phrase that's said is that I am a beggar who is just telling other beggars where to find bread. And when you come to experience God's grace, you discover that you, you want to share that with everybody. There's enough for everybody. And all I am is a beggar who wants to tell other beggars where I found bread. It's not that I'm great or that I'm puffed up. Uh, you know, uh, grace uh, doesn't puff us up. Grace develops this deep humility in us that, man, God found me and I want to share him with you too. But when we drift away from God's grace, when our lives drift from being rooted and grounded in God's grace and we try to root them and ground them anywhere else, we, 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 we develop this anxiety that we just can't ease. And we try all these different things to self-medicate. And we try the acceptance of others. We try drugs, alcohol, addiction, whatever, and nothing will ease that anxiety in us. We, when we drift from God's grace, we get unstable and easily misled by other people. And we start looking to be defined by external things. Uh, we become inwardly focused and only thinking about me, 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 I, I, I. And that even happens to entire churches. Entire churches, as they drift away from God's grace, drift away from just being astonished by God's grace and having this desire to share that, um, churches can become inwardly focused. We've seen this before, right? We, we, we know what that looks like. Yeah, awesome. Awesome response, guys. You're doing great. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, churches can become inwardly focused to where we only think about what do I want as an insider, not what do people uh, need that, that need to be reached. And, and um, you know, as, as, as my life drifts from God's grace, I can feel this pressure to perform, this pressure to, to prove myself. And I don't know about you, but that's, like that's a daily struggle that we can wander into. And so there's this, this need for us to have this one-time experience where you know, we, we, we experience the grace of God and we, we respond to his grace by faith and we commit our lives to him. But then there's this daily growing in grace that has to happen, this daily being rooted and grounded in God's grace because a, a, you know, a, a life grounded in God's grace is the only stable life we're going to have. Let your life be grounded in God's grace. Um, jumping into Acts 15, I want to give a little bit of backstory about what's going on here. Now, Paul and Barnabas have just come back at the end of Acts 14. They've just come back from their first missionary journey, and they've gone all over the world, and they've seen people come to Jesus that everybody would have said, those people will never come to Jesus. And, and, and they've seen people healed and delivered and, 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 and marriages restored and, and relationships between parents and children restored and, 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 and most importantly, brokenness between people's lives uh, and, and, and God. They've seen reconciliation happen there. People's relationships with God restored, and they've come back, and they're just telling all these stories. They were sent out at the beginning of Acts 13. They, they, they gather back in at the end of Acts 14, and, and as they gather back together, they're just telling stories about everything God's done. And, and like we said last week, when we're walking around this earth with the power of heaven in our lives, uh, this is a quote from Todd Wagner's book, Come and See, which I highly recommend to everybody. Where he, he says, when we're walking around this earth with the power of heaven in our lives, our lives should be full of stories. Our world should be full of stories. We scatter every Sunday we gather the next Sunday. Guys, man, we, we, we can have stories of what God has done in the meantime. 
We have stories of struggles even that we've had in the meantime. We can tell stories of, you know what, uh, I, I shared Jesus with this person. Uh, uh, she laughed in my face, but I'm going to try again tomorrow. Or, or, or you say, you know what, I saw this person uh, set free, and I got to be a part of that. Our world is full of stories when we understand that we're walking around with the power of heaven in our lives. So in Acts 15, uh, this incredible stuff has happened, and all these people, all these outsiders have given their lives to Jesus. And uh, people have come together, all different tribes, tongues, nations, uh, different uh, ethnicities, different social standings, different economic statuses. All these people have come together that are different, and the only thing they have in common is Jesus. The only thing they have in common is they place their trust in Jesus. And they come together, gathered in, uh, in, in, in this family of God. And, uh, and immediately there's going to be some conflict um, because you're going to have some people that say, unless you look and act like me, you must not really be saved. Is that something the church put to bed 2,000 years ago? We continue to have this struggle. At this time, it was about circumcision, but, but it, it's not. Sometimes in some generations, it's been about, uh, it's been about tattoos. If you've got one, then, then you're out. Or it's drinking or, or playing cards or don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls that do. Don't drink, don't chew, don't get a tattoo, whatever. But, 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 We're always looking for some kind of external quality to say this is us and that's them. And that's going to continue to be a struggle for us. But, but and we're, as individuals and as people, as groups, we, we are prone to drift away from being rooted and grounded in God's grace. And so, uh, and so uh, in Acts 15, you got the first business meeting. Um, do you know some important stuff can happen at those? Uh, we hear busy man, oh man, hit the snooze button, wake me up in 30 minutes, okay? Uh, and, and, but, but man, some important stuff can happen at these. And, and there's some fierce debate that happens. You know, we can debate each other fiercely. We can disagree deeply and still love each other and still agree that we want to see the gospel taken forward. But you know, in your opinion, in, in your experience, I should say, would you say that typically church people argue about stuff that matters or junk that doesn't matter? I think we all know the answer to that. This isn't a business meeting where people are getting red-faced and arguing about the color of the drapes or what kind of carpet to put in the fellowship hall or whether we should build a fellowship hall. This is a meeting about what is the nature of the gospel. Uh, what's the nature of salvation? What does it mean to be the church and who's in and who's out? Those are things worth fighting for. Now, some Christians want to fight you about everything. Man, they will fight you about anything at the drop of the hat, even the dumbest stuff. But then some over here won't fight for anything. Oh, you believe that Buddha and Jesus are equal? Great. Well, hey, to each his own. Guys, there are some things that you can get riled up about. There are some things that, 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 you can, that we can amongst ourselves debate fiercely. That's exactly what, what happens here. Uh, the church is about 20 years old at this point. Paul, again, Paul and Barnabas have, have come back. All these uh, outsiders and, and ca- characters have come to know Jesus. And the church has uh, this, uh, this conflict. The early church is miraculous, but it's not perfect. Anytime God's moving, there's going to be some conflict. And, and it's amazing to me, you know, that God's big story has moved forward through ordinary people. If you look at the disciples in the Gospels, Jesus chose what would appear to be some of the least qualified people to carry his work forward. He entrusted the biggest job in the world to some really underqualified people. And that's exactly what he continues to do today. He trusts his biggest job, making disciples of the nations, bringing God's kingdom near to people. He entrusts that job with us who are are very unqualified or underqualified. Um, God's big story moved forward 
even though he gave this, his most important assignment to some unqualified people, part of the reason the big story moved forward was because these early Christians knew some basic math. What math did they know? They knew this equation, and they built their lives on this equation. The equation that they built their lives on was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You can take my house, you can take my job, you can take my donkey or my car, you can persecute me, you can hate me, my family can turn against me, you can take every, my life can be a country and music song, basically. But if I've got Jesus, I've got everything. And that's math that we kind of wandered away from, but, but, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And they simply grounded their lives on this truth. And, you know, persecution comes and they say, you know what? But Jesus is risen. Man, I know Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Oppression comes, famine comes, struggle comes, conflict comes. But you know what? I know Jesus rose from the dead. I know the Holy Spirit has invaded my life. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So the early church is miraculous, but not perfect. Um, And so all these people want to be, uh, want to have the salvation that Jesus offers. All these different types of people start getting saved, and then conflict arises. Chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And we can see how these, uh, how these guys arrived at this idea. They said, hey, unless you get circumcised, um, you cannot be a real Christian. You cannot be saved. And we can understand how they would have this idea because God gave circumcision to Moses and to his people, even before that to Abram, as the sign, the external sign that you belong to God, that you're part of God's people. And Jesus is Jewish. The earliest Christians were Jewish. And so it made sense to these early Jewish believers that you have to become Jewish in order to be a Christian. But the thing is, there were 613 laws that the Jews obeyed. Circumcision was just one of them. If you add customs on top of that, a new believer could spend the rest of their lives learning how to be a Jew and, and, and spend their whole lives learning that and never have any time to get around to fulfilling the Great Commission. So there was a problem here. It's not that God has changed his mind. We're going to see in this chapter that, that it's not like God just said, oh, I'm going to throw the Old Testament away. It doesn't matter. No, it's fulfilled its purpose. And Jesus is now taking uh, the story forward in ways that only he can. Okay? Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with, by the way, I mean, we keep doing this, right? So we keep, today it may not be circumcision, but it's, it's something else. Unless you do this, you may not be a real Christian, you know? And, and we got to watch that because that's drifting away from the grace of God. All right, so uh, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, in other words, this is a pretty intense argument. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And brought and a Gentile, again, is somebody that's not Jewish. They brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You see, you see that word, them. Now, these Pharisees, uh, these are people that had opposed Jesus, but now some Pharisees have given their lives to Jesus, and they've been transformed, which is amazing. And Paul was one of these Pharisees. But Paul, God, God has done a work in his life and opened his eyes in a ways that some of his Pharisee brothers uh, haven't seen yet. 
But the Pharisee, even, even the Christian Pharisee, is always looking for us and them. Them, them, them. They must look like me. They must vote like me. They must think like me, whatever it may be. And so there's this heated debate. And so verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter said, Hey, remember when Cornelius, I went over to Cornelius' house and like, I didn't want to do that, but God told me don't, don't call something unclean that God's already made clean. So I went and I preached the gospel and him, his whole family reunion all gave their lives to Jesus and they received the Holy Spirit. We baptized them. He said, Hey, I was there. This happened. God did this. Verse, nine, uh, verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He says, and he made no distinction between the, us and them. This is a, a, a theme that keeps getting rehashed in the book of Acts, that in Christ there is no distinction. Whatever ethnicity or social status or financial status you come from, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Having cleansed their heart by faith. Now verse 10, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to hear? Uh, and, 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 and Peter said, hey, why are we asking these guys to do what we throughout our history, have never been able to accomplish. And that's a really good word because grace um, reminds us that I'm a beggar who's found bread, but, 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 but legalism says, hey, we all need to work a little harder, right? And sometimes we do what Peter's saying here. We put a yoke on other people that we can't even bear ourselves. If you're a parent, do you ever do that with your kids? Do you ever expect your kids to be a better Christian than you are? You ever say, oh man, hey, you don't get to have a bad day. You don't get to be grumpy. You don't get to throw a fit, even though you just watched me throw three or four. Um, Sometimes we put a yoke on other people that we ourselves cannot carry. Verse 11, Peter's still talking. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It's what Peter lands on. He says, Man, it's grace. It's grace. That's, it's not grace plus something else. It's not Jesus plus something else. We are saved by God's grace, by the sheer act of his goodness toward us. And then, and then, and then Paul stands up. And Barnabas, verse 12, uh, the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They just start telling stories of everything God's done. Man, look at what God's done. And then in verse 13, James. Now, this is James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. They have the same mother, Mary, but James also has the earthly father, Joseph. Now, James hadn't believed in Jesus all through Jesus' earthly ministry. But after the resurrection of Jesus, apparently he comes to be a believer, and he becomes to be a leader in the church. This is part of the reason you can know the gospel's true, part of the reason you know the resurrection happened. Because, like, what would it take, if you've got an older brother, what would it take for you to believe that he was the Messiah? Like, wouldn't it take uh, an encounter I mean, I didn't ask, like, if he thinks he's the Messiah, but, like, what would it take for you to believe that your brother is the Messiah? Uh, man, sorry, I get some, uh, some uh, awkward family dynamics going on right now, but, but, man, James, the brother of Jesus, comes to this understanding, man, he's risen, he's the Messiah, who, he's who he says he is. And, he, and, and, and James, as important as the stories are, as important as the testimonies are, James roots his feedback in, What does God's word say? Um, Verse 14, he says, Simeon, he's talking about Simon Peter, has just related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Um, James quotes Amos, the prophet. 
in the Old Testament. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called on my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. God's word says in the prophet Amos and says similar things throughout, that God, by his grace, will rebuild and will restore. Do you know that that's what God's grace does? God's grace rebuilds. God's grace restores. It rebuilds and restores marriages. It rebuilds and restores uh, uh, lives. Rebuilds and restores friendship. Rebuilds and restores uh, relationships between parents and children. God's grace restores and rebuilds uh, your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with other people. That's what God's grace does. It rebuilds and it restores. And James is saying, all the way back in Amos' day, there was that one day God would come and rebuild our ruins. Is there something ruined in your life? It needs to be rebuilt and restored. And he said, and as God comes and rebuilds our ruins through Jesus, he has now kicked the door wide open and called all those people that were outside, come on in. And he makes no distinction. Um, now, this didn't say, he's not saying everybody goes to heaven. He's not saying, not saying all dogs go to heaven. He's not saying do whatever you want to do. He's saying you can have a you can have an eternal relationship through Jesus, with Jesus, now and forever. And Jesus will take you even if nobody else will. He's saying Jesus makes no distinction. Anybody can come to him and come to the Father through him. He's saying this has fulfilled the scripture. Therefore, verse 19, it is my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And this is really, for me, uh, the big idea or the big point of this passage. The NIV puts it this way. It is my judgment, James is talking, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You could take that word Gentile. Remember, that's a non-Jewish person. You could replace that with the word outsider or outcast. You could replace that with the word lost person. He's saying it's my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the lost who who are turning to God. Um, You ever think we make it a little harder than it has to be? You ever think we put up some barriers or some burdens that we don't need to? And... uh, He's appealing to Scripture, but he's saying we don't need to make—the gospel is offensive already. The gospel is, is offensive in itself. It's difficult already. We don't have to add to the difficulty level. And there's some things that we do that one way we make it difficult for, for others is maybe we set up rules that make sense to us that don't make sense to anybody else. And the church has been really guilty of this over our 2,000-year history. Maybe we, we, we move past the circumcision debate, but then we, we bring up other rules. If you've got, you got to keep this rule to be one of us. You've got to look like me, talk like me, dress like me. Uh, are you wearing, are you wearing a, a pair of jeans with holes in them to church? What's going on? You know? And we're just like, we're miss, you're missing the point. It's easy easy to do that. Um, another way we make it difficult for the lost is if we as believers, if, if we're presenting our lives as though they're picture perfect, then, and if we're presenting this picture that a Christian doesn't have a struggle, doesn't have a struggle with addiction, doesn't have a struggle with sin, that our lives are, I'm not saying you need to word vomit all your problems on Facebook. There's enough of that out there, but we can present vulnerably. We don't have it all together. And throughout history and throughout recent history, that's one of the areas that church has really struggled is we've, we felt the need to present that we were perfect. And what happened is other people felt like, I can't attain that standard. And people have decided in our culture that of all the places I could go for help, the church isn't one of those places. And guys, we got to turn that boat around. All right, we got to turn that boat around because you got the message that's going to set people free. Um, 
But, but if we present picture-perfect lies in the, as opposed to vulnerability, we make it hard for people. We make it difficult for outsiders. Clicks make it difficult for outsiders. Uh, Andy Stanley talks about, have you ever seen five-year-olds playing soccer and all these five-year-olds just clump around the ball and you can't see anything? It's like a cloud of dust and they're all huddled together. Uh, he says, we do that in church, and he calls it fatal clump disorder, okay? And, and if you walk into a room full of believers, if you walk into a gathering of believers, and it may happen this morning, it's very easy for people who know each other to clump up together because everybody's insecure. And so if I walk into a room and I'm being driven by my insecurity, I want to go to somebody that I know knows me. I'm going to go to somebody that I know is not going to blow me off, and we're going to end up just clumping together. And if I'm new, I'm going to walk in, I'm going to say, hey, you know, what's, what's going on over here? Hey, can, can I be part of this? Oh, I, I guess I can't be part of this. And, and, and when we're only thinking about ourselves and our comfort, and I want to catch up with my friends that I know, and I, then, then what we end up doing is we make it very difficult. For new people, we make it difficult for guests. And some of those guests, man, they may be believers already. They may go somewhere else, but they, they may not know Jesus. Karen Green and Bill Stein are going to talk to us tonight at 6 in our equip session about hospitality. How can we practice hospitality here in our groups, in our homes? And I hope you'll be a part of that. We, we, can, we, can, we can make it hard for people when we, when we preach, when we, when we preach uh, uh, politics in a way that's divisive. Now, I believe the gospel needs to speak to every political issue there is. But whenever we try to hitch our wagons to a political party and read issues through the party platform, then that's off-putting and divisive and, and makes it difficult to others. Um, we make it difficult to others when we're insensitive to struggles that we don't understand. So um, uh, I, I remember... Being in a uh, revival um, service one time, and a, a very well-known speaker came, and he was uh, he started talking, and 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 a, and a, and a good uh, a good homosexual friend had come to the to the revival, and and the preacher got up there and started telling gay jokes, um, and uh, uh, you think you think my friend. Uh, really felt welcomed and, and, and was, was able to, to hear God's word. Uh, no, it, 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 it wasn't done in a spirit of grace. It wasn't done in a spirit of truth. It wasn't done in a spirit of authenticity. I'm currently doing some study and some research to try to understand um, uh, gender dysphoria and transgender issues in, 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 in a way that, that I don't currently understand. And, uh, you know, not so I can come and say, hey, it's, it's great to be that way, but I want to understand so that I can have compassion for people that have a struggle that I don't have. But a lot of times we say things and we do sing and we elbow each other and, we do, and we're insensitive to struggles that other people have that we don't have. And, 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 that, and that, that makes it hard for outsiders to come to know the Lord and be transformed, okay? And so I think we could keep adding to this list. There's lots of ways that individually and as a group, it's easy for us to make it difficult for outsiders. The decision that James makes and the group makes is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for lost people who are turning to God. And those words carry weight, and they carry the day, but this is an issue that keeps coming up over and over and over. And so then something kind of odd happens. Um, therefore, it's my judgment, verse 20, but, should, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been str uh, strangled and from blood. So, we might say, what in the world? He just said it's by sheer grace, but then now he says, abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from things uh, sacrificed to idols, and abstain things that have been strangled or that have blood in them. Why would he tack that on? First of all, James is not saying if you abstain from sexual immorality and if you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, you're going to be saved. He's not saying you've got to do that to be saved, um, but he's saying if you're saved, if you know Jesus, 
These are some things that, that you're going to need to do. Those last two about, are, are the two about uh, drinking, eating blood and like eating stuff that's been sacrificed to idols or been strangled. Those are part of pagan practices of that day. That if I'm a believer, if I'm a, a pagan that's come to know Jesus, and if I'm like, yeah, let me drink some blood, yeah, yeah, you know, party on. Like, um, and I'm trying to win my Jewish neighbor to Jesus, like that's going to present a huge stumbling block, isn't it? If I'm like doing something that's deeply offensive. To, so, so I was in the Middle East recently. Like if I'd walked into a pizza place and been like, give me, a, give me pepperoni pizza. I want all the pork you, you, you got. Like that would have been deeply offensive. And so James isn't saying if you, you got to abstain from stuff sacrificed to idols or you're not saved. He's saying you need to do this because you, same thing he said in verse 19, don't make it hard for people that don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus. If you're a Gentile and you've come to know Jesus, don't make it hard for your Jewish brothers and sisters to come to know Jesus. He speaks about sexual immorality because that's, that's been in the pagan world then and now, one of the biggest areas where we wander from God. Just imagine the impact. If, if our world for one or two days honored what God says about sex, think about the difference that would make. Would people be getting raped or abused? Uh, sex trafficked? I mean, when, when, when God's uh, laws about, uh, about morality and about sexual immorality aren't there just arbitrarily. They're there to guard and protect. And so the, the, Jesus has fulfilled and set aside the ceremonial law, but there's part of the moral law in the Old Testament. The moral law in the Old Testament um, He's fulfilled, but it hasn't been set aside. And that's like a two-hour-long conversation, but we'll just leave it at that. The, 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 the crux of what James is doing here is he's saying, if you're a Jew, don't make it hard for non-Jews to come to know the Lord, if you know the Lord. If you're a Gentile who knows the Lord, don't make it hard for your Jewish neighbors to come to know the Lord. Again, the gospel is difficult enough. It's, 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 uh, it's offensive. It's not difficult, but it's offensive enough. You mean I need to place my trust in Jesus and b- accept that I'm a sinner and, and believe that a crucified, risen guy is, is the savior of the universe? I mean, that's offensive enough without us being jerks on top of it, okay? And so let the gospel be offensive, but you and I don't have to be offensive. Um, we need to think in terms of how might I be making it difficult for lost people around me to come to know the Lord. And finally, I just want to talk about a couple of ways we practically, we drift away from grace. And the first two of these, I'm thankful to Andy Stanley for pointing out. Um, he says, first, we're, we're tempted as individuals and we're tempted as a church um, to drift away from a focus on outsiders to a focus on insiders. And that's part of what's going on here in Acts 15. Um, the Jewish believers are saying, hey, you need to do things the way we do it. This is how we do it. This is how we look. This is how we act. These new people need to do it that way too. And, um, and, you know, when a church first kind of starts or gets planted, there's this big focus on, on winning the lost. But over time, this insider mentality creeps in, and we start thinking in terms of, hey, I'm a paying customer here. I wish they'd play the songs I like. I wish they'd, hey, what about, you know, I, I like it better when the preacher doesn't preach for Ever, you know, whatever. Um, that's a stumbling block for me. You know, uh, we, we make it, we make it, um, get behind me, Satan. We, we start to focus on an insider mentality. Um, and it's easy to start catering towards people who are insiders. Um, but our leadership team here, and I myself have made a decision and made a decision years ago that. The church doesn't exist for those that are here already. And so I'm not going to make decisions as a leader based on who I want to keep here. I refuse to make decisions based on 
if we do this, we might lose somebody that's here already. I refuse to make decisions based on who do I want to keep. We're going to make decisions based on who needs to be reached. Because we've been given a commission to reach, to make disciples. So I care about all of us, but our job is to reach the lost. A second thing we see in this passage that Stanley points out is that we have this tendency to drift away from grace and toward law. We just have this tendency, and you come to know the Lord, and you're just overwhelmed by grace, but then over time, this thing comes in of, well, I've got to do this, and I've got to do that to prove that I belong to Jesus, or to, or to prove that I'm, uh, that, that I'm really loved, or I've got to earn his love. There's just a way that we, we're, we t- we're tempted to, to, to move and gravitate towards earning it. Um, and then I'll add that we're tempted to, dr- to drift away from truth and toward lies. Lies about ourselves, lies about God. Um, grace and truth. John's gospel says that grace and truth are filled. Jesus is filled with grace and truth, full of grace and truth. The early church didn't say grace is over here and truth is over here. We can't say, I believe in grace, but not truth. Grace and truth are wedded together in Jesus. And so the early church stands and even debates over the truth that salvation is by grace alone. Um, we're tempted to drift away from truth. And this is daily as we walk with God, as we're grounded in grace. Am I drifting from, an outsider, from a focus on outsiders to insiders? Am I drifting towards law? Am I drifting in legalism? Am I drifting towards lies? So in conclusion, the band's coming up. My conclusion to you, my encouragement to you is just keep swimming. Keep swimming against the current that wants to draw you away from God's grace. Let your life be rooted and grounded in God's grace. Questions, um, is your life about reaching people or is your life about your preferences? Is your life about, I got to conform so that maybe God will love me? Or is it, a, is it about, man, God has, has just lavished his grace on me? Um, by God's grace, don't put on other people but you yourself can't walk out. I love Paul's words in Galatians 2.20 where he says, this is a man that's encountered the grace of God. And after he encounters, does his life change? Yes, it does. Does he live different? Yes, he does. But not so he can earn God's love, but because he's been gripped by God's love. And Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, this is what a man says or a woman says has had an encounter with God's grace. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I just wonder if that's true for you. I hope it is. I want it to be.